Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. This week, we're up a mountain in Davos for the World Economic Forum, that famous and infamous gathering of the global great and good, now celebrating its 50th anniversary. That's 50 years of talking about the world's problems in the middle of the Swiss Alps. Who would have thought it? This year, climate change has dominated the agenda and 10 teenage environment activists were invited to come, including Greta Thunberg. There were also 119 billionaires and many, many chief executives and bankers. But luckily, tackling global inequality has also been high on the agenda here, so you can stop worrying about that as well. I'll be talking about the potential physical and social impact of climate change with the director of the McKinsey Global Institute later on, and I'll be asking the leader of one of the world's biggest trade unions, Christy Hoffman, how she would make the world a fairer place. But first I wanted to catch up with a Davos veteran. I'm tempted to say a Davos institution. So Dr. Jacob Frankel is a very distinguished economist and former colleague of mine at JP Morgan. He served as chairman of JP Morgan Chase International since 2009. And before that, among other things, was governor of the Central Bank of Israel for nearly a decade. Jacob, uh, lovely to have you on Stephanomics. It's been 50 years they've been holding the World Economic Forum. You just told me this is your 33rd, Indeed. did you say? Yeah. Uh, I'm struck how the economic debate here has broadened in the past few years. Um, Most of the people I've spoken to here, and indeed I'm speaking to for the podcast, are not focusing on just the narrow macroeconomic issues. They're talking about the environment, about populism, about social inclusion. Do you think the discussions we're having here up a mountain have become more or less useful over the past few years? I think that the definition of useful has evolved. So in a way, they are all relevant given the interests of the time. For example, uh, 30 years ago, there was no question about what does it take to do good economics. There was the so-called Washington Consensus. You knew you have to have budget responsibility, monetary policy that focuses to achieve price stability, and things of that type. And uh, at the same time, the issue was, will governments have the political will to execute what we all know needs to be done? The compass was clear. The great financial crisis of a little bit more than a decade ago marks the most important uh, change. Because that crisis, which uh, still has the consequences seen today, that crisis shattered the compass. The question was not anymore, how do I execute what we all agree needs to be done, but rather, what should be done? The narrative was, experts have failed, we need to have a new theory, we need to throw all the textbooks away. In my judgment, a big overshooting with a danger that you will throw away also a lot of good wisdom. It all started with the notion that somehow all the conventional macroeconomic policies are paralyzed. 
fiscal policy could not be used because debt was already too big. Structural policies could not be used because it takes more time to show fruits. And we are in a crisis, therefore the theory went, we need to show quick results. Hence, all the lights were put on the central banks and monetary policy. Before long, central banks became the only game in town. And they needed to do the only thing that could be done, namely lowering interest rates. The fire was extinguished. And the question was, how do you go back to the old paradigm of growth and prosperity? However, what was coined as unconventional policies, to be understood as a temporary departure, has become almost a conventional policy because the consequences are still with us. Your expertise is, is monetary policy. You're a former central banker. I mean, I'm struck that the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank are all now, under, all now undergoing a review of their tools and their targets, everything they do with monetary policy. Um, what do you think, where do you think they should end up with those reviews? We should not expect a new textbook to be written in this context. That's not the issue. The main focus will be on various procedures, on various mechanisms, on various regulations. It will not be the new perspective of macroeconomics because those things are not done through a review within the central bank. Those are things that are generational things. That's why I'm saying don't throw the old textbooks away, but also recognize that being the only game in town for monetary policy is a very dubious compliment because it means that you are granted or taking upon yourself tasks that you are not equipped to deliver. You do not have the tools to deliver. The name of the game today is innovation, growth, technology, uh, creativity. Where does this come from? It comes from everywhere but monetary policy. It is fiscal policy, it is tax system, it is structural policy, policies that remove distortions, policies that realize the flexibility of the economy is the key for further growth. But if we do all of these re-examination within the monetary policy domain, it leaves the impression that also the answer to the current challenges will come from the central bank. I all welcome to see reviews of monetary policy, but I warn against the illusion that here we will see a new framework that will allow the only game to ta in town to continue. But on that uh, precise point, then where does inflation fit into that? I mean, do we have do we have an understanding of why all those inflation targets are being missed and where we're going to get inflation from, if not from the only game in town? Well, I th my answer when people ask me where is the inflation. After all, you, we, we were told that if you print, that's what happens. Well, the inflation found itself in another place, in asset markets. You have kept interest rates so low that you have provided artificial stimulus to investors and others to invest in the financial markets because that's where the incentives go. And as you do that, you inflate asset prices. You have stock markets all over the world reaching new heights every day and as a result you have a greater disconnect between the real economy mm -hmm. and the financial economy. At the end of the day the mirror and the 
reality needs to be aligned. Let's make a long story short and say, macroeconomic policies have been pushed to be out of balance, excessive reliance on monetary policy, and I think that therefore, as we do the review of monetary procedures all over the world, it's time also to wake up other, money, other policy instruments. Okay, final question. Uh, we've talked about this, that you are uh, soon retiring from JP Morgan. You're going to have a bit more time to think grand thoughts. Um, you already have a PhD, but I wonder if you were going to go and get another one, go back to school, what would, knowing everything and seeing the world as it is, what would you want to go and study? Well, to begin with, uh, I would ask myself, uh, what is the name of the game today? And I will say those things were not even on the curriculum when I was a student. AI, artificial intelligence, uh, big data. Who knew all of this? Internet, all of that kind of thing. So I think that, uh, but in more general way, I think the future will not depend on how many degrees you have, but rather how, many, how much knowledge you have accumulated. And knowledge is not set of information, but capability to operate in a changing environment. Capability to know where to find the information that you need once you need it, but really capability to operate across section. Most of the curriculum of important universities has moved away from narrow discipline to interdisciplinary approach. And the reason why it is the case, because there is greater understanding that to be a good physician, you need also to be a good psychologist. To be a good psychologist, you must understand uh, uh, how other systems work, etc. And on-the-job training will become a very important thing. We spent a lot of resources on training and too few resources on retraining. Why do we need to retrain? Because the things that we are training for have changed. And hopefully we will move into even a more rapid change. And as a result, the whole concept of education and training will need to be modified. Well, we're being very interdisciplinary on Stephanomics this week. You're the only economist uh, I I'm talking to. But uh, Dr. Jacob Frankel, thank you very much. Thank you. We talk a lot about the future of work here at Davos. And these days, I think there is also a lot of talk about capitalism needing to deliver a better deal for people. And trade unions, you might have thought, would be useful things to have around when you're trying to navigate both of those things. But by and large, I would say that the trade union movement is not very well represented here at Davos. One exception is the Union Network International, UNI, which represents 20 million people around the world. And I'm delighted to say that the UNI's, UNI's General Secretary, Christy Hoffman, is here with me. Christy, thank you and welcome to Stephanomics. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I guess I should start by asking you, you know, what kind of reception you get here at the World Economic Forum. I mean, they do talk a lot in these sessions about giving workers a better deal. But do they want to do a deal with the likes of you? Yeah, well, actually, there are 10 of us here, and I think more or less that, that's been the same for, for several years, just to, you know, spice it up when the worker is... 10 out of how many thousands? 10 out of, you know, 3,000. But in any event, um, we're, some of the top, you know, international leaders are here, and so we're a feisty group. Um, how do they react? I think that, you know, the question of... Um, that the hard question that a lot of the companies here have to face with us is that our demand is we want to 
in particular unis voicing this this year and others as well, that we have to really re strengthen and restore the role that collective bargaining plays in our economy because without that we will never solve the issue of inequality. And we talk about inequality, breaking down social cohesion and uh, diminishing economic growth and all the problems of inequality, immorality, the number of working poor, um, the gross you know, pay that goes to the CEOs these days and all these things. But at the core of it is we have broken down and attacked collective bargaining for so many decades and it's at the point where we need a, a conscious campaign to restore collective bargaining. And, yeah, I mean, uh, do, is that the message that companies really want to hear? No. I think they'd rather hear, you know, you should give everybody a little more time off or you should think about rescheduling or some, like, benefits they could sprinkle down to make life better for workers. And that's all good. But we need a power shift. And if we don't have that, we're not gonna we're not gonna solve the issues of inequality and we're not gonna be at the bargaining table to navigate, as you pointed out, the new world of work where it's critical that unions are able to workers through their representatives uh, are able to sit down and navigate how we're going to implement new technology. What are the skills required? How are, how will this impact the workers? Um, and climate change. We need to be able to negotiate just transition. So all the problems we face in every direction, we need to have a worker voice at the core. That's why there was a good line I heard earlier in a session from the chief executive of PayPal who said that the the multi-stakeholder capitalism that people talk about couldn't just be about having two wolves and a sheep decide what to have for dinner, which I thought was... A, but it is true that, I mean, if you think about the 19th century, you know, the real changes in working conditions and pay happened because they were forced on businesses by legislation and to some extent by, by trade unions. I mean, do you think it will be any different this time? I think there's always room for voluntary movement in the right direction. We negotiate with companies all the time. We try to persuade good companies that they should negotiate agreements on a whole range of issues, and we're successful in that within limits. But we want governments also to step in. They're not Governments are not just there to protect the corporate elite. They need to step in and, and strengthen their collective bargaining institutions. I mean, I guess one of the reasons why, I mean, there's been, the U.S. famously has this legislation which does make it very difficult to organize a union. Um, but one of the reasons why employers uh, are not always very welcoming is they, in gen, unions have not been associated with helping change to happen. So is that is that a fair criticism that unions also have to be a bit more flexible? I think what you find if you look at um, unions all over the world is that unions where there is a more equal balance of power tend to be way more flexible. Um, and so when you look at our Nordic unions, so from Sweden or Norway, they are really welcoming open arms uh, with their employers towards how to make the employer more efficient, how can we use technology to advantage everyone, because they know they're going to share in the gains, um, and they don't feel threatened by change. They feel that they want to embrace change and embark upon change in a way that 
makes their jobs more interesting, their companies more competitive, shared prosperity, etc. So, and then when you look at unions in the UK who are a little more embattled, maybe they're not as flexible, same for the US, but the, a lot of that also depends on whether you have worksite, you know, enterprise bargaining or, you know, worksite by worksite relationships or a sectoral relationship. Where you have sectoral bargaining. So just in one industry. Right. And that, I mean, the, there was a big study um, uh, that came out this year from the OECD, which is not known as being a radical institution, that said sectoral bargaining is really healthy for economies. It's better for employers and better for workers. Now, they didn't say every form of bargaining is, is the greatest, um, but they did say that. It's a real change. But it's yeah. a real change. And they've really said, look, you want stronger economies, better ability to weather the ups and downs, better ability to implement new technology. I mean, I know I started out my uh, working career in a factory and a very big machine. And when they introduced numerically controlled machines that didn't require me to turn the wheel all day, I could not have been happier. I was so happy that my job was easier, safer, cleaner. Um, and I had a union so that it wasn't going to, uh, you know, nobody felt threatened by the in- implementation of new technology because we knew our company needed to be productive and high-tech if they were going to succeed. And I think most workers want their companies to succeed, for sure. Um, It's really that they also have to think about, well, does this mean I'm thrown out on the street with no protection? Yeah, and I did hear it, actually hear it, I think I heard a Scandinavian unionist saying that... uh, that we're not worried about uh, new machines, we're worried about old machines. They're the biggest threat to, to workers. What about the gig economy? Because it feels like, again, when you look at the debate around, you know, what's an employee? You know, lots of these gig uh, yeah. companies, uh, you know, Uber and others famously, they've kind of not had to worry about workers' rights so much because they say that all of these people working for them are not employees. Um, and there's a sort of legal debate around that. Don't you haven't seen until recently? You may correct me. Um, traditional unions really active in that debate, and uh, or indeed kind of reaching out to Uber workers. Is that kind of the next frontier? Is that going to be new unions that do that, or the old ones? Um, you know, I think it is maybe the next frontier. But I also know that a lot of members of Uni are, uh, or or the transport workers two different federations, but I'm aware of a lot of unions reaching out to Uber workers. And now, some of it is a question of making sure they're regulated in the same way as taxi drivers, for example. So, um, like in Stockholm, the uh, Uber drivers were not allowed to operate unless they registered as a taxi company. Brussels, they're not allowed to operate. Geneva, they're not allowed to operate. So many cities across Europe are saying, either you act like an employer or you act like a taxi company or you're you're out. And so this we're seeing this increasingly, but we're also seeing unions talking to the drivers a lot. And then in the US you have a big fight in California about whether or not they're an employer and I think that that's going to play itself out. But increasingly Uber is facing like all these different doors, none of which are especially attractive because to be an employer doesn't meet with their business model. To be a taxi company, eh, that's also kind of burdensome. And then to just be free to do what they want, 
more and more governments are saying no. So, and unions are talking to the drivers and trying to, especially in California, the unions are really, really involved in California. And I think that will be a little bit of a test because that's by far their biggest market. Climate change has been around as an issue for years here at Davos, but it's all felt a bit, well, superficial. The movers and shakers coming here have been urged to take a bus up the mountain, not a limo. Instead of the usual freebies, we got plastic-free drinking bottles in a recycled bag. This year, the streets are still full of cars and chauffeurs, and a lot of those bottles still seems to have ended up in the trash. But it does feel a bit different. And not just because Greta Thunberg was here, not just because we've had weeks of coverage of the fires blazing in Australia. I think it's also because serious money is now going into making the world zero carbon. And business leaders really are starting to think about what it means for them. The McKinsey Global Institute has brought a report here to Davos on what exactly climate change could mean, not just for the planet, but for people and the global economy. And I'm glad to say I have one of the directors of the Institute who co-authored the report, Jonathan Wetzel, sitting down with me here. Jonathan, thanks very much for being on Stephanolics. Thank you, Stephanie. We have had a lot of consciousness raising here over the years about the cost of climate change. What's different about your report? Well, we're looking at the physical climate risk. So what's different is that this is, we think, the deepest and most comprehensive assessment of both the hazard uh, and its social and economic impact. Uh, There are a lot of reports out there which take a look at a specific area, whether it's wildfire or a heat wave or flooding uh, in a specific geography. What we have tried to do is step back and take the global view while going deeply into nine different cases of extreme climate today, and then looking forward and say, how will all this play out across the world? So that's, that's what we've tried to do here. And we think that is a step forward uh, for the conversation contribution, we hope, to decision makers. And when you talk about the socioeconomic impact, what, what's an example? What's the kind of thing we're talking about? I was very struck, for example, you had the figure about the percentage of the world population that could face a quite significant risk of a of a change of weather that could actually make it unlivable? Well, yes. So we're looking at impacts that are affecting our three basic uh, sources of capital, human capital, economic capital, and natural capital. Uh, And we look at the hazards in terms of the droughts, the heat waves, the floods, and so forth, and how those hazards affect those systems. So the intersection of that is physical climate risk. But there will also be places that maybe for some period of time would benefit or even find it easier to grow food, for example. I mean, it's very differential, the impact. Indeed. Physical climate risk is spatial. It happens in a place. Uh, and as a result, those, those impacts in those places may differ. As you say, agricultural yields in uh, northern latitudes are likely to increase. Uh, and uh, warmer weather for some parts of the world will be a benefit. And uh, uh, cold weather kills lots of people. But on the other hand, it's, uh, this is not a report that tries to make a trade-off. It says we're trying to, again, measure the full risk so that people can decide what is the appropriate action. Just to play devil's advocate, I mean, I wonder when you're very clear, and a lot of other reports are also very clear, on the differential impact and that it's often the poorest countries Mm. that are going to suffer most, which, of course, ought to be a call to arms. But if the the richer countries that have also been most reluctant to change their behaviour... If it's increasingly clear to them that they're not going to pay the full price of 
failing to do anything and may even benefit in the case, as you say, of some northern European countries. I mean, do you just is there a little bit of you that worries that actually more information in this debate could make the political argument harder because you're saying to people you're probably not going to suffer from this. We know that now with a bit more certainty than we did a few years ago, um, but we still want you to help pay for it to avoid it. The reality is I don't think we can, in this ever more interconnected global world, um, somehow pretend that what happens somewhere doesn't affect us wherever we are, whether it's the supply chain that gets interrupted, it's migration, it's uh, financial wealth being uh, dissipated because of the unexpected systemic knock-on effect and uh, tax revenues for Florida being affected by devaluation of coastal properties. I think ultimately physical climate risk affects every geography. And, uh, And because it is so non-stationary because it's changing all the time, it challenges our assumptions. Those thresholds that we have basically built our economies and our physical infrastructure, whether that is the grid transformers and how much heat they can bear, uh, or it's the seawalls and and how high they are, uh, or it's our ability to stay outdoors. I mean, these things are going to be changing and challenged uh, globally. And that's, that's, that's the reality of where we are. And even in you know, countries like the UK, where there's a commitment for zero carbon by 2050, I think even there, politi- there people criticise it for not being a near target. Um, even there, people haven't thought about getting rid of all their gas-fired uh, boilers in their house and things like that. So people are definitely underestimated. Yeah, I think that we are just at the beginning of incorporating this risk into our financial and economic calculations. That, and with, without a measure, of course, it can't be managed. And so we are attempting to help provide some of those measures so we can now think that through. And as others in the financial community have said, that should then factor into portfolio allocation for capital. Uh, it should be reflected in insurance premiums and reinsurance premiums. And those decisions ultimately are going to be, I think, the ones that affect decisions like what should my boiler be and how should I what I what will my city council invest in? Because it simply put will be more expensive uh, to invest in uh, assets uh, which are either climate exposed or are climate uh, risk inducing. I'm interested, I said at the start that I thought that there had been a, a, ch- a change, a sort of maybe a tipping point has been reached in terms of people taking it, uh, not just taking it seriously and talking about this, but it actually, as you suggest, people, um, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, for example, this week was talking in a session about reminding people that every British financial institution was going to be stress tested now by the Bank of England, not just for a financial crisis, but for what it would look like in a zero carbon world. Um, a lot of investors... They had a BlackRock talking about how environmental factors might have to start sort of factoring into how they think about companies. How has this report been received here? Do you sense a change of of mood? Well, I I think it's, first of all, I mean, it is the topic. I think the entire uh, Davos experience so far for me has been all about climate. And uh, I think that's so there's a recognition. I think there's also a a bit of a, I don't want to say that the good news is that people seem to know what, think they know what the bad news is. Uh, and it's without, again, knowing what that risk is, it's very hard to justify putting incremental capital to work to do something about it. And so one might have the best will in the world, but 
there are all these priorities, and uh, whether those are you know, saving uh, for pensions for the orphans or uh, you know, the climate or something else, this allows us to say, well, this is not a question of choice. This is an underlying change that affects everything. And so it gets factored in now across the financial community. So the reaction, I think, has been to say, well, great, now we have something that we can work with. We actually have some data that we have a methodology that says, well, this is how we think about physical climate risk. This is what we can do about it. John Whistle, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with the final episode of our second season. Sad, as Donald Trump would say. But you can always get news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was written by me and produced by Magnus Henriksen. Special thanks to Dr Jacob Frenkel, Christy Hoffman, Jonathan Wetzel, Clive Tarling and Victoria Cochran. Our executive producer is Scott Lamman and Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.